You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. You're listening to Amphibicast. I'm your host, Andrew Bates, And tonight, I am really lucky to have a very unique person for this week's episode. Uh, he's going to be our, our expert guest. I have uh, Dr. Brian Gratwick from, uh, well, I should say not from, he's the co-chair of the IUCN Amphibian Disease Specialist Group. And we're going to talk about some of his research with um, disease mitigation and even uh, potential reintroduction of certain species of Adelopis. But um, before we get into that, of course, I want to thank everybody for the usual stuff. Um, five-star reviews on Apple Podcast and Spotify. I got a nice update from Spotify and uh, there's a lot of input from listeners. I know a lot of you posted stuff on Instagram, and I happen to be in the, the top five for uh, some of your podcast listens. And uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate the shares. And uh, it's been another good year. We're in about the, well, we're in the second year, going into going, going to be going into the third year soon. So, of course, I want to appreciate all the listeners on Spotify who took the time to follow the show and leave nice, leave nice, uh, nice reviews. And, uh, of course, for everything else, if you want to support the show, check out the link tree in the show description. I have links to a number of things. I have a 10% listener discount off of in situ ecosystems. If you're looking to get a nice vivarium, you'll get a 10% listener discount. You'll also find links to the merch store and the Patreon page. Uh, if you want to become a patron, it's a great way to support the show. $5 a tier, get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And there's also a link to Panamanian frog conservation in there as well. If you'd like to donate to Panamanian frog conservation, follow that link and make a donation. I know it's the time of year where people are giving. Um, you know, people want to do do nice things for charity, and um, you know, again, supporting Panamanian frog conservation is a great way to do so. So, uh, other than that, let's get into tonight's episode. I've been waiting for this for quite some time. I'm really excited. Uh, Brian, welcome. How are you doing tonight? Great, thanks. How are you, Dan? Uh, great. I'm doing great. It's my pleasure to have you on. I'm glad we could get together. So, um, I mean, you're, you're co-chair of the IUCN amphibian disease specialist group and i want to get into that but first for the listeners and myself i was wondering if you could tell us about your your story like what were some of your first experiences with amphibians like and what led you to where you are today well i am i was born in zimbabwe and i grew up a fish nut so um by the time i left home i think i had about 20 aquariums in my bedroom and I dug about another 20 fish ponds in my backyard. Um, so I was, I was really into uh, fishes. I got really got into native uh, fishes in Zimbabwe. And um, one of my professors at the University of Zimbabwe was a frog guy um, by the name of John Loveridge. And he took me on my first frogging expedition to see... Um, uh, Tomup Turner. It's a little sand frog on on a, a sand river in in northern Zimbabwe, and I was pretty excited by those and got talking to him about frogs, and he, and he said, "Oh well, you should go go around and um, you should go and have a look at some of the um, Pyxocephalus dispersus around around Harare." And that's the giant African bullfrog. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And he says, yeah, I used to have one. I used to feed it rats. And um, I was like, what? You used to feed a frog on rats? He says, well, mice and pinkies. But yeah, they would, they would, they would, that's what they ate. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. And I spent a lot of time really looking very hard around Harare for these giant African bullfrogs and couldn't find them. Um, and I just eventually went up to him. I said, "Look, John, you're wrong. There's, there's no, 
there's none around. I've I've looked and looked and looked very hard um, to find these guys, and you know, there's a lot of jokes around around Harare where people say, "Oh, I ran over a bullfrog," um, and it's just a common sort of roadkill thing. And they're normally talking about the bufos, not a pixacephalus, uh, but um, I I just kind of got got to the stalemate and then eventually i was reading a a a story about some of the very first settlers of of harare which was then salisbury and they were complaining about being kept awake at night by the incessant whooping of bullfrogs and it's like oh whooping that's pixacephalus um and so i guess that was probably really my first actual encounter with with amphibian declines i believe is probably related to um roadkill but um yeah those that species had disappeared from around around harare um i also tried keeping like an axolotl and uh, a couple of hyperoleus <clears throat> um but yeah you know especially the hyperoleus and all the live food was a, a lot of hard work um and then i i went to um, I left Zimbabwe where I had done my master's in fisheries biology and I got, got a Rhodes scholarship, took me to Oxford where I did my PhD in British Virgin Islands fishes. <clears throat> and then I moved to the United States and, and, and started um, grant making work with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. Um, and eventually I was recruited to the Smithsonian to lead their amphibian conservation programs. And now I am the, um, the amphibian conservation biologist for the Smithsonian National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute. So um, that's that's where I, I spend, spend most of my time and I am I'm full-time on amphibian conservation. What does that role entail for the IUCN? Like what's... Um... I mean, I guess, like, what would an average day or an average week involve for you as, as the young So the IUCN um, co-chair is, is, is um, it's a volunteer position. Um, my primary employer is the Smithsonian National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute. Um, but the, with the IUCN, I am the co-chair of the Amphibian Disease Specialist Group. Now, what, what the IUCN... Um, species survival commission is is it's a, a group of of experts in species um so you might have heard of for instance the elephant specialist group and they they help to determine what the population of elephants is in the world and um they provide professional opinions to cites about a, a listing of of these elephants they also um work with the red list authority so if you've ever you know if you know about the iucn red list and critically endangered or endangered or threatened species those are all part of the red list assessments so um members of the the species survival commission experts get to participate in these red list assessments and they develop action plans and um can the role of the chair of of uh, of a uh, a group like the amphibian um, specialist group disease group, um, the role of of the chair is simply to 
uh, communicate with all of the members in a global network um, so that you can consult widely and representatively throughout the world. So you don't develop a global action plan that only considers expertise from the United States, for example. Um, if you want to develop a global action plan, you need to solicit um, input and technical um, experts from all different places. So that's that's really my role. Um, and the the disease specialist group is situated within the amphibian specialist group, um, which is situated within the Species Survival Commission. Did that clarify anything? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, I I didn't realize that it was a volunteer position. That's that's interesting. Is this is this a position that you hold for a certain term or how does it yes like, okay I see. it's it's a, it's it's for a certain term um but my primary employer is the smithsonian and um at the smithsonian um i joined in 2008 um and at the time amphibians were declining it was the aza year of the frog and um the aza was calling on members to step up to the plate and really um put some skin in the game for amphibians and so when I when I joined, um, I was I was told to go figure out how the Smithsonian could best leverage its resources to amphibian conservation. And at the time, the amphibian chytrid fungus was just spreading across the Panama Canal um, from western into eastern Panama, and people were very worried about that. And so there was some urgency to to try and use the resources of the Smithsonian and we got um, the Cheyenne Mountain Zoos in New England, Defenders of Wildlife, um, and the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute to get together and um, with the Houston Zoo. And we decided to create the Panama Amphibian Rescue and Conservation Project, which is really occupies most of my time. The IUCN um, disease specialist group, the, the main thing that's been occupying my time right now is working on the amphibian conservation action plan. So that is kind of a global document um, that, that depends on input from experts throughout the world um, on, into, into amphibian diseases and how we can deal with those amphibian diseases. I mean, speaking of disease, a great deal of your research focuses on amphibian disease mitigation. I mean, given that amphibian disease such as, as BD, B-cell, ranavirus, et cetera, are, I mean, for all intents and purposes, are probably here to stay. It's not like they're just going to completely vanish. What are some of the management strategies that you've worked along or, or developed to, to mitigate disease? Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, so these, the way in which you can manage these diseases is kind of falls into two big pots really first is the host you know if you have a if you have a sick frog that has bd it can be treated with uh, antifungals um and you know there are there are numerous direct treatments for it for a frog that's sick with bd um other sorts of approaches have been along the lines of um, buffering populations so that um, if you um, 
for example, head start a bunch of frogs and keep supplementing them to a system where they're declining, you'll be able to keep a population ticking along. Um, there's also, uh, uh, there was a very strong push at the beginning and, and I was, was leading that really, um, along with a bunch of other folks, but that was, that was to look at the idea of probiotics, which is, can you put beneficial skin bacteria onto a frog and have it effectively um, producing its own antifungal pharmacy, right? Um, and that that I've I worked on for, for, for a very long time, and I'll get into more details on that later. Other approaches are developing vaccines. Um, and from an environmental perspective, you can get rid of the chytrid fungus by increasing heat. So that could be habitat modification or um, providing, you know, trimming tree canopies or reintroducing frogs to places that might be uh, climatic refuges from the disease. Um, they also include, you, you could just treat the environment with fungicide to get rid of the, the fungus. Um, and you can also just improve the habitat because if your amphibians are reproducing faster than they're dying, they're going to be able to persist. So that's really kind of summarizes the, the main disease mitigation strategies that folks have been working on. And these are all actively in practice or some of them are still being investigated as, as realistic? They're all possible? being actively investigated. Honestly, the, the, there, there is not really a very effective um, management strategy for BD or B cell in the wild. Um, Ranavirus, they have developed a pretty effective vaccine for, um, and that's the, the Chinese developed that for uh, Chinese giant salamanders, and that's been used um, very effectively. But um, as far as the other stuff, it's, it's, it's very much a case of putting one foot in front of the other and um, trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work, and, and kind of make some incremental progress. How much progress would you say we've made since, um, let's just say, 15 years ago or 20 years ago? Because it seems like more and more, and I mean, this is something that we're going to address. It seems that uh, the headlines are always very bleak, or I mean, they were even much, much bleaker 15 years ago, 20 years ago about frog declines globally. Um, but now I'm seeing more and more research that seems to show that things are, are encouraging. What kind? Like, have we made a dramatic, dramatic strides, or is it still baby steps here? Well, everybody's looking for a silver bullet, including me. <laughs> and what we're finding is we're not we're not coming up with that silver bullet, but we are understanding the systems a lot better, right? And that's that's science. It's incremental progress. It's it's what 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 are the things we we know what are the things we think we know and what are our margins of error around that and what are the things we don't know and in the last 10 or 15 years i think we've been able to shed a lot of light on the we've been able to shift a lot of the things from the 
things we don't know pile into the things we think we know with a margin of error, right? And we've still got to push them, um, push the boundaries and, and see if we can make more progress. So it is definitely uh, an incremental thing, but people are pretty good at solving disease problems. You know, we do it very effectively for humans and for livestock. But um, as far as wildlife goes, it's it's taking wildlife diseases very seriously is, is um, only something that I think has really begun to happen in the last 10 or 15 years. When we talk about amphibian disease, you know, chytrid, B-cell, BD, et cetera, they, they get the lion's share of attention, and obviously for, for just reason. Uh, I mean, amphibian skin is a wonderful thing, but it's also sort of the Achilles heel, I, I guess, for lack of a lack of a better analogy. I, I struggle with <laughs> I struggle with that one. But um, yeah, it's it's the kind of the Achilles heel. Uh, what is it about amphibian skin that makes it so susceptible to chytrid? Well, an amphibian skin is a very unique organ. Um, I listened to your interview with Oz. Azabov the other day, and he, he gave a very good description of that. Um, it's a very unique organ. It's not like mammalian skin. It's not like your own skin, right? Your own skin is more of a, a barrier with a few sweat glands, right? But for amphibians, it is a major homeostatic organ. They, they do gas exchange for it. They do ion exchange across their skin. The skin is home to a lot of symbiotic microbes that have some protective benefits for the amphibians. They can um, produce metabolites that can help protect the, the animal. Um, the frog also has granular glands in its skin um, and other kinds of immune cells in its skin. And those can help defend the, the animal from disease and even attack with poison dart frogs. They have, have poison glands, right? So, the the amphibian skin secretions are 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 key to to an immune system um and and so are the, so are the 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 microbes um but what happens when the the amphibian chytrid fungus comes in it'll it'll um attack the keratinized parts of those skin and 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 just kind of burrow in and then form a, a spor sporangium and reproduce and then release more spores into the environment that will either reinfect the frog or swim off to find another frog. And those, those spores are actually chemotactic. They can actually smell out a frog and then actively swim towards them. So um, I think the, the, this parasite is, is pretty well adapted to, to living in amphibians, but some of them are better at um, resisting infection than others. Some are very, very resilient and 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 can can hardly be infected at all. Like, um, you know, the the Xenopus, the African clawed frogs. Um, they're they're pretty hardy creatures, and others, Catalopus, seem to be very, very susceptible almost across the board. We have uh, about a hundred species of described Adelopus on the planet, and many of them have have declined. I'm on a, 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 a another group called the <laughs> Adelopus Survival Initiative, and it's it's a 
group of experts from all of the Adelopus range countries who got together to um, see if we what we can do to learn from each other to help protect Adelopus. What's so specific about the Adelopus genus that makes them so susceptible? Is there something unique about their skin, about their biology? Like I was always curious in terms of why Adelopus seem to just be right in the sights of, of this disease and they just seem to be so devastated by it. Like why why them? So there's two there's two things really. The the first is um there was some nice research done by um Jordan Gass and, and Jamie Voiles that showed that Panamanian golden frog skin actually their skin secretions actually helped grow the chytrid fungus and they didn't inhibit the chytrid fungus at all they were they were facilitating it and a lot of people say oh but adelopus they have these tetrodotoxins in their skin they should those toxins should help protect the amphibian well it'll those tetrodotoxins are very effective at protecting the amphibian from creatures with nervous systems <laughs> like predators but not so good at protecting them against um a fungal pathogen um because they 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 are neurotransmitter disruptors um and they don't seem to bother the chytrid fungus at all um so the adelopus don't seem to have skin secretions that will prevent infection the other thing is they have a behavior like they live in a goldilocks zone for the chytrid fungus and on the edges of cool mountain streams where the temperature is always good for the chytrid fungus um, and it's always cool and moist and pretty much a, a good good place for the chytrid fungus to be other species that we know of um that may have behavioral resistance may maybe will will not stay down by the stream side maybe will be up in the canopy where they'll be exposed to more light and more dryness and uh higher temperatures or more variable temperatures and for the chytrid fungus temperature is really key once you get above 28 degrees celsius the the chytrid fungus really dies um, and you can actually use that heat as a treatment for the chytrid fungus if your animal can withstand warmer temperatures simply raising the temperatures above that that thermal threshold for the chytrid fungus for a prolonged period or a week may actually help that um, amphibian to clear the disease so i think behaviorally you've got a frog that likes to live in the goldilocks zone for the fungus and it doesn't really seem to have much innate um, resistance to the disease. We've also seen publications where um, they tend to have a very vigorous acquired immune response to a fungal infection. And we do know um, that some other species like um, lowland leopard frogs that I, I've worked on, um, they, if, if they can kind of ignore the infection and don't have this massive acquired immune response to the disease, they can tolerate infections a lot better. But, but those, those big um, immune reactions are very costly and in energetic terms to the amphibian to mount and, and um, 
they can really just be like pouring gasoline on a fire and it just the frogs will burn out so with adelopus um we haven't really found a whole lot a whole lot of resistance but in panama they have discovered that some of the the um some of the Adelopus various that are persisting, this is work by uh, Jamie Voiles and Corey Richards, they discovered that some of these Adelopus various that were persisting had actually evolved skin secretions that were more antifungal. And I just got back from uh, an Adelopus survival initiative um, expedition um, funded by the National Geographic to uh, uh, Sierra Santa Marta in Colombia. And that's a very interesting place because they have multiple Adelopus species on that mountain. And they the chytrid fungus is there apparently. But um the some of the 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 scientists working there with Fundacion Atelopus, they have been conducting market capture um population assessments of these animals and shown that they've got stable populations so that is kind of one of these situations where you look at it and you go aha if we can figure out why these animals are okay is it something about the animal is it something about the environment or is it something about the pathogen maybe it's just not a virulent strain of bd that's in that particular location so if we can figure out what it is that's allowing those animals to persist, that might provide us the clues to figure out how to replicate that with other Adelopus species. What role does skin bacteria play in all this? Because I know that you, you've talked before about um, like probiotics and whatnot. Uh, obviously, amphibian skin is an extremely complicated thing, and as such, I'm going to assume they have very, very unique uh, biofilms with with bacteria. But what role does bacteria play in this and how is it a defense? So <clears throat> this all kind of goes back to research that was done by Reed Harris at James Madison University. And he was studying four-toed salamanders and he was kind of looking at why they brewed their eggs. And he found that there was some skin secretions on the salamanders that had antifungal properties. And he was, he actually found that those, um, that there was a specific chem chemical called violacine that was being produced by a skin bacterium, Janthinobacterium lividium. And that violacine was um, helping to prevent those eggs from becoming infected with soil fungi. He's like, oh, isn't this thing wiping out the world's amphibians fungus? What if we put J-Live onto a susceptible amphibian? And so he was working with um, some students and uh, did the first experiment where he put J-Live onto um, mountain yellow-legged frogs and exposed them to the disease and found that, that the J-Live protected the golden, the sorry, the mountain yellow-legged frogs from the chytrid fungus 100%, and 100% of the ones that didn't have the J-Live died. And so that was a pretty sort of convincing proof of concept for me. So we tried the same thing exactly with Panamanian golden frogs, 
And what we found was that the GLUF didn't stick through well to the golden frogs and not a lot of um, violacine was being produced. And so there was no protective effect. So then we scratch our heads some more and we said, well, what happens if, if we go to Panama and isolate a bunch of different bacterium that also have antifungal properties, right? And so you can test those bacterium's antifungal properties by taking secretions from those bacterium and putting them in a little test tube with the chytrid fungus and seeing if that kills the chytrid fungus, right? So we tried, we managed to identify a bunch of different antifungal potential probiotic species. And we tried putting those on the golden frogs. And what we found was that it, those did not help protect the frogs from disease. But in that second experiment, five of the frogs that did survive the, and, and clear the chytrid infection all had a unique microbiome. They all had, had a shared similar microbiome. And they weren't the bacteria that we put there. <laughs> they were just there already. Um, so that kind of made a scratch. I said, well, it's correlation causation, right? Did these particular bacteria help to protect these frogs from the disease? Or was it something about the skin secretions that was influencing the skin bacteria in a similar way? Um, so that was kind of a puzzling um, outcome for us. And we said, well, okay, let's see if we can find these same skin bacterial signatures. So we worked with the, um, with the Maryland Zoo, who holds most of the, the Panamanian golden frogs in the United States. And we swabbed about 200 frogs in their collection, and we analyzed the skin bacteria on all of them. And unfortunately, we didn't find any frogs with the same bacterial sort of composition that our five survivors from our previous experiment had had. So we're kind of scratching our heads and going, well, how are we going to, we've got to, we've, if we're going to be able to make this probiotics work, we need to really figure out a way to put our thumb on the scale for the frogs as hard as we can. Um, even if it's just in a lab setting, if we can get something to work in a lab setting, then we've got something we can carry forward, right? Um, we need to get our proof of concept like, like we had for um, the mountain yellow-legged frogs, and we need to get this for our lopus. So um, I challenged uh, the postdoctoral fellow I was working with at the time, Matt Becker, to really come up with something innovative. And he um, talked to some folks at MIT who were working on genetic engineering of bacteria and collaborated with them. And what they did was they took the, the five most common skin bacteria that are found on all golden frogs in captivity. And they try to genetically engineer those to produce violacine that you heard earlier from my JLIF story, right? So they actually managed to get one of these core bacteria engineered in such a way that it was producing lots of violacine. This, this bacteria was normally gray and it went bright purple and 
purple is indicative of the violacine being produced. So now we had a bacteria we knew could live on golden frog skin and produce the violacine. So we tried an ex uh, the, a third experiment where we, we put this genetically modified bacterium on the frogs and we said, let's also throw the kitchen sink in it. And from these 200 golden frogs we swabbed earlier, we found a bunch of different candidate probiotic bacteria. And we took probiotic candidates from several different unrelated genera of bacteria and made a, uh, a probiotic cocktail with them. And we treated a bunch of frogs with those. But what we found in the end was that none of those bacterial treatments had any protective effect. Um, they, the frogs all developed the same disease load and the same, died at the same rates as untreated frogs. So um, that was very disappointing for us, but we learned a lot about, <laughs> about amphibian skin and, and, and their microbes. And then that kind of takes us to the the skin bacteria stuff with the uh, reintroduced frogs. And, and one of the things that folks have noticed is when you take an amphibian out of the wild into captivity, the skin microbes change a lot. And so that if there is all of these potential um, symbiotic functions of this microbiome, the question is how will those how will those animals function when you pop them back in the wild? And um, the answer to that question with the Adelopus lumosus uh, study was that the, the natural skin microbiome actually recovered very quickly in about two weeks after being released back into the wild. So that was, that was us breathing a bit of a sigh of relief and <laughs> in terms of... Um, finding out that the the natural skin microbiome can be restored even if it's not in Adelopus's case uh, very protective what is rewilding i was wondering if you could elaborate on rewilding and like how is it, how was it developed as a strategy for managing fragile amphibian populations so in the context of um the amphibian skin microbiome rewilding will just be to restore the natural processes so that no more active human intervention is needed. And in the case of, of the skin microbes, releasing the Adelopus back into the wild, the skin microbes kind of found their own way back and were restored pretty quickly. In terms of frogs, the idea would be to um, conduct reintroductions that lead to sustainable populations so that those become self-sustaining populations with no human intervention needed. Yeah, I'd like to discuss that more. But um, I mean, first, obviously, before we can reintroduce species, we have to remove them from the wild and, and raise them in a captive environment. I mean, obviously, with so many of the Adelopus species being particularly fragile, like what are some of the protocols and husbandry practices that go into raising an Adelopus species with the goal of eventual release back into the wild? How, like, what's the like what what are the nuts and bolts behind that? Hmm. 
Well, it's it's fairly complicated. Um, at our center in Panama, we have uh, nine. So we have seven shipping containers that have been completely modified to um, house amphibians, and they are biosecure units. Each one's about four hundred square feet, and they have redundant air conditioning systems. Uh, backup generator, um, water filtration uh, of everything going into the into the pod, and wastewater treatment of everything coming out of the pod as gets treated with ozone um, before it gets discharged into the municipal sewer. Um, so that's uh, on the on the, the sort of nuts and bolts of the sort of amphibian center. You also have to have the food production. And in Panama, we can't just call up uh, a friendly cricket supplier if our cricket colonies crash. So we've got to we've got to really produce a lot of, of crickets. We have our cricket colony, we have more than 300 cases of adult crickets at any one time. Um, about 600 colonies of, of fruit flies of, of this, the smaller melanogaster and the larger hydei, and hundreds of cases of springtails for the juveniles, and a bunch of other different um, food production items for uh, for the different frogs that we have, just to provide some variety. Um, things like pantry moths um, and and roaches and earthworms. Um, but for for Adelopus, what happens is we bring the frog in from the wild. Um, they will go through a prophylactic treatment of itraconazole to get rid of any chytrid fungus on their skin, and that involves an itraconazole treatment for 10 days in a row. The frog will be swabbed at collection in the field um, immediately after the 10-day itraconazole treatment and then after the 30-day quarantine. And what we need is two negative swabs from that, from that frog in order to be accessioned to the main collection. So we will not mix a, a wild frog into our main collection until it's been prophylactically treated and double confirmed negative for the chytrid fungus. Uh, once they're in the collection, our goal is to breed all of the founders as quickly as possible. If a founder dies before it's bred and represented in offspring, it's uh, it's a great loss to, for the species. And so we want to get all of our founders represented as quickly as possible. In our, in our collection goals, we tend to want uh, about 20 male and 20 female founders to secure about 90% of the genetic integrity of those founders over over 100 generations in captivity. Um, once you start getting smaller numbers of founders, you're going to start really rapidly running into genetic bottleneck issues. Um, <clears throat> So you want to get those pairs bred as quickly as possible. And you generally want to pair your founders, male and female, get get them represented. But you don't want to you don't want to mix all of your lineages too quickly. So you want to get 
pairs represented and sufficient offspring from those pairings to then take to an F2 breeding. Um, and what we do to, to breed the animals is we'll look at the female uh, uh, and try and evaluate their gravidity on a scale of one to five. And when they reach a five, we're, we're both uh, oviducts on each side of the animal are completely full to 100%. Um, and you can actually see the eggs through the abdomen in, in many of these Adelopus species that have a pale abdomen. Um, when both oviducts are completely full, um, that's a gravidity scale five, and we will pair it with the male. Those males are very keen to um, amplex. In some cases, they will amplex for 100 days if they are not, um, if there's no oviposition, they will just stay attached to that female for very, very prolonged periods. So you really want to only pair them with the female that's that's ready to, to lay. Um, and then we place the the pair in a breeding tank. Um, it's a 25-gallon long low tank with, uh, uh, I guess, about eight inches of water, a bunch of rocks and gravel, a lot of aeration, and um, a sump underneath it with recirculating water. Um, so they they can have some rocks to swim around and deposit their eggs and in sort of crevices they they tend to like them to be in shady dark areas and after overposition has happened we will tend to just cover those tanks up with black plastic just to just reduce the amount of light getting in there until the tadpoles are are hatched um and then when the tadpoles are, are hatched and the yolk sac has been absorbed, we start offering them plates of food, which are just little glass plates that have been um, painted with uh, food, food mix, generally with uh, spirulina or ceramicron, um, sometimes just other flaked fish food mixed into that. Um, or some of the rapashi diet um, mixes, and then we'll we'll dry those dry those plates out, and then offer them to to the tadpoles, um, and they will come and graze them. And we just replace those daily, and then we do a third water changes once a week. Um, and we do just test all of our water all the time. We like to make sure that there is enough hardness in the water to prevent spindly leg syndrome. So we want to keep our calcium hardness above about 50 parts per million, like Kathleen was saying. Um, and so our water coming out of the tap in, in Panama is actually very, very soft. It's The hardness is only about um five parts per million so we do actually supplement um calcium chloride into our into our rearing tank water uh to help prevent spindly leg syndrome um 
and then I, when the when the tadpoles start metamorphosing, we will scoop them out and put them in little critter keepers um, that have some bunched up damp paper towel. They're mustered regularly. Those paper towels changed very frequently, and they're offered springtails as their first food. Um, and, and, and UV light, and they will be eventually transitioned um, onto pinhead crickets and then to fruit flies. And as far as the adults go, how do you, do you keep them in like a very, very Spartan kind of quarantine enclosure? Or oh. do you keep them more so elaborate? The, the adults are kept in holding tanks, about 25 gallon tanks, and they, they have UV lights, automated misting twice a day. Um, we used to mist them a lot more than that, but we've been running into some polycystic kidney disease issues where we think it may be connected with the water. Um, and so we're trying to keep them a little more on the drier side these days. Um, we uh, have a false bottom in that tank, uh, a potted plant, normally uh, Monstera or some other sort of generic tough plant that can live in low light conditions. Um, and then in those tanks, we generally split them. We'll put the males in one and the females in another in groups of up to about 10 in a tank. Um, we did find that um, when you first place wild males in the tank together, they will fight and it will be stressful for them. They will produce corticoids in their feces. Um, and the aggressive interactions will be pretty, pretty steep for the first two weeks. But after about two weeks, they kind of get used to each other and the stress goes down and the aggressive interactions subside. And after about four weeks, they're, they're quite fine hanging out together. And out of the, I guess the, the froglets or the toadlets rather, how do you select individuals and locations for reintroduction? I know we kind of covered that briefly before, but you mentioned different things like um, an area that might be a different climate, a different temperature, or how, how do you how do you pick the frogs, and then how do you pick the place where the frogs ultimately go to? Okay, so we have been trying some release trials, um, and I'm I'm calling them release trials, not reintroduction trials. Because our goal of this is not to establish a self-sustaining rewilded population. Our goal is simply just to understand how these animals transition from captivity back into the wild and what are the challenges they face apart from disease challenges, right? And so the key to that is if you are doing a release trial, you want to make sure that the animals, if your release trial is successful and there happens to have been a reintroduction that is successful. You want to make sure that those are not all siblings, <laughs> right? And you, you don't want to be creating new uh, genetic relatedness issues in any released population. So if you 
do a release, you want to make sure that you take individuals from several different clutches of eggs um, that are genetically managed in our captive population to be, you know, the most distantly related to each other. So genetics wise, we want to ensure that there are frogs represented from different different clutches. Um, loca location wise, right now our our primary um, criteria for a reintroduction site is: is it accessible? Is it somewhere that we can get back to? A lot because too too often what will happen with these release trials it will be a big press release oh we released 75 million tadpoles into the wild and that's it and there's a photo of someone releasing them and that's it that's all you hear and you never hear anything else and we just didn't want it to be that we wanted to actually understand what what is happening to those animals so um we have done three Adelopis release trials, two Adelopis lamosus and one with Adelopis varius. And in those, what we've done is we've marked marked a bunch of frogs um, so that if we recapture them, we can know who's who. Um, and we've also put radio um, telemetry tags tied around the, uh, the waist of a subset of those frogs so we can actually observe where they go, how they disperse, and what they're doing. Um, and so uh, those studies have really um, been to, to try and figure out what are the challenges faced by these frogs. And one of the things we've learned is that if you actually hold the frogs in mesocosms for just 30 days um, before you release them, it actually improves post-release survivorship um, because those animals don't disperse as far and they kind of, after having been held in the mesocosm, they just kind of, once they're released into the wild, they just kind of hang out in a, a smaller spot and not dispersing so far. They seem to be encountering fewer predators. But one thing we did observe is that these frogs are getting taken out. Um, by snakes, uh, by smoky jungle frogs, by whip scorpions, by spiders, um, and they're getting, they are getting eaten. And, you know, we've had about 30% mortality in the first month of release and from one of our studies. And you you kind of look at that and you go well what's what's going on well these frogs are have a post-somatic coloration right and so if you have a post-somatic coloration but you don't have the skin defenses to back it up you're just kind of a walking little mcdonald's sign for predators um so one of the things we're really looking into right now is how do we restore the tetrodotoxins in these frog skins so that when we do release them, that they have th their skin defenses restored. Um, so at least they can um, have a better chance at, at avoiding predators. Um, so that's, that's, that's one of the, the cool things that we've, 
discovered in our in our release trials. But, but we also would like very much to be able to try some release trials in different places, right? You talked a little bit about the climatic refuge idea. Um, if we can find places that will be suitable for the antelopus, but unsuitable for the chytrid fungus for many of the days of the year, <laughs> um, then maybe those will be places that there will be a better chance of a, of a release trial actually leading to longer survivorship or eventual um, reintroduction programs. So there's a bunch of different ideas that we still have to explore. Uh, but the key is, can we get back to that site? Can, if, if we are having someone in the field going to check on these frogs daily with radio tracking, is there, you know, is there somewhere for them to stay, for them to be safe? If, if something happens to them, can they get out to a hospital? You know, just some real logistics questions. So it, it does kind of limit, you know, we can't do a release trial at a site accessed by a helicopter. It's just unrealistic at this particular um, stage. I think we have to learn more about from our release trials to understand what's likely going to lead to a successful reintroduction process. And once we, once we have that knowledge, then we can maybe with more confidence do some of these more sort of helicopter in, leave the frogs, come back and check on them again next year. Um, but until we get to that stage, I, I think there's just a lot of learning that has to happen. One of the first things that comes to mind to me is we talk about chemical defense that obviously many amphibians have, especially Adelopus, obviously. Um, it, it's it's an interesting problem. I mean, you, you obviously you want frogs to be able to be released to, I guess, to see how they do. But if they're completely deficient in that natural defense, um, I mean, let's just say for argument's sake that you, and I'm just going to kind of come up with a scenario here. Uh, let's just say that you introduce a tremendous number of any given Adelopus species to accommodate for losses from predation. Would that be an effective strategy or would that be kind of counter counterintuitive and at odds with the way the natural ecosystem would be set up? It's a good question. So our, our release, tr we, we, we actually, we kind of tried it a little bit because our first release trial was about 90 animals. Um, and what we found is that we could find the radio tracked animals again, no problem. They had a redetection probability of about 80%. But the redetection probability of an unradio tracked but marked animal was only 2%. So it's really, really hard to find these animals again. And we said, well, okay, if it's only a 2% um, uh, relocation probability, all we need to do is increase the number of frogs. So we did a release trial with Adelopus varius, about 400 animals, um, with the idea that, you know, 2% of 400 is a lot bigger than 2% of 90. Um, and... With that release trial, we tried to do it in the rain in the dry season, but 
um, where we normally get 80 millimeters of rain in January, we ended up with um, about <laughs> a meter more of rain than we normally get. And it was like working in a shower. In fact, it was just raining so hard that that sometimes our folks couldn't even get out there with radio trackers because it was just too, too wet. Um, and so that was a bit of a, uh, a setback on that particular reintroduction trial, but we did not actually find any of those animals again after 30 days. And we, we monitored that site for six months. Do you have any idea where they went? Um, a lot of, with the rain, a lot of them dispersed way outside of our uh, release area and they dispersed very quickly. So they gapped it for the hills. And I think one of the things that, that um, we have observed is, is when it does rain, the antelopes move. Um, and when it rains hard, they'll climb trees. So they don't get swept away in the water if they're next to a river. That's interesting. Uh, another thing just just came up to mind um, before when you were talking about the the captive rearing conditions. You mentioned the use of UV lighting. Is that just to mimic the natural exposure, or does that have anything to do with chytrid? Because from from what I've heard from different sources, is that UV radiation can lessen or kill chytrid. Is that is there any relationship between the UV lighting and, and chytrid, or that's just for environmental? Uh, Purposes. We do use ozonation and UV to treat our wastewater from our facility, um, but uh, the UV light is simply for calcium sequestration and bone development so that you get good, healthy bone formation and no metabolic bone disease. I see. Yeah, it was just, I, it was, I wasn't sure if it was one, the other, or both, but... Um, I, I mean, here's, here's a question for you. And I, I've, I think I've asked other people this, the, the long-term goal with a species like Adelopus, um, I mean, obviously I'm assuming that goal is going to change as, as circumstances change. And I'm, I'm going to ask you your thoughts about that a little later, but, uh, I mean, are we looking to have a forest filled with Adelopus regardless of whether we put them there or whether nature allows them to stay there? Is that one possible outcome here? For, for me, I think the outcome is we don't want these animals to go extinct. Um, and we might never get to see a forest filled with Adelopus again in our restoration journey. But to have them there and to have them being self-sustaining, I think, is really, really my goal. Having seen some of these Adelopus um, at Sierra Santa Marta, it, it was really, it was really nice. It was really fun to just go into the forest and, oh, here's one. Oh, here's one. Oh, look, I found one. And it, it was really, really good. And the, and, and the Fundacion Adelopus, who was working with them, 
they would, you know, take a photograph of the belly and say, oh yeah, we've seen this one before in the, on this many occasions, right there in the field. It was one of these magical field moments to just be able to, to see that in action. And I think that, you know, we should be able to do that um, with, with, with all of them. But in, in Panama, for example, you know, there are a bunch of other species of Adelopus that have declined very, very significantly. Um, one of them is Adelopus chiriquiensis, and that's gone. It's extinct. Um, and it's a very, very beautiful harlequin frog. Some of them were yellowish, some of them were very blue. Um, and it's it's disappeared. And so our chances to do anything about that species are, are gone. They're foreclosed. But for all of this, the ones that we have captive assurance populations for, it gives us options. And when we do figure out the cure for this disease, we will have the raw materials to work with um, to, to begin to recover these populations to some extent. Is there a way to... And I'm as I'm asking this, I kind of realize how unrealistic it is. But is there a way to create? I don't want to say chytrid free because that would be impossible, but like a a reduced chytrid zone or area where frogs could live that it could be somehow treated for chytrid or similar pathogens in a way that would allow a wild population to exist with like minimal interaction with the frog. Is that something within the realm of possibility? They've done it in the island of Mallorca with Mallorcan midwife toads. A um, bunch of amazing biologists said, okay, we're going to beat this thing. And they waited for the dry season, went out and found the remaining residual pools in two streams on the island, captured all of the tadpoles out of those pools, treated the tadpoles with itraconazole, emptied the pools, scrubbed them out with itri- with vircon. For several years in a row <laughs> and treated any adults they could capture and they managed they were successful at eliminating pd from the environment um can that be done in a rainforest probably not but it it has been done that is pretty incredible i um and and i'm, I'm not familiar where, where is this again mallorca okay okay yeah, that sounds that's that's amazing. You could just s- scrub and sanitize an entire island. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was possible because um, it was fairly simple habitat, few species, and it, you know there are times of year where it was reduced to just non-flowing pools. Um, but it's very ambitious, and I take tip my hat to those guys. They're just amazing. That must have Amazing taken story. a lot of yeah. It must have taken a lot of discipline to be able to to pull that off. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we're at the end, but my question—I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of already asked this question in different ways, but I was curious about what your opinion is in regards to amphibian conservation. And there's many different means to different ends. And in, in your opinion, just your your feelings, 
what are some realistic and attainable goals for the near future and how my our approach how my our approach has changed i don't necessarily mean just regards to the adelopis genus but uh, frogs that are th- threatened by disease in general yeah you know everybody's looking for a silver bullet and and i am too and i think that when we don't find it we shouldn't get disheartened the fact of the matter is we've made incredible amounts of progress just in the last decade on understanding these diseases on um understanding resistance on on understanding um how habitat augmentation can really help to um put our thumb on the on the on on the scale a little bit in favor of the amphibians um and i think that we are we're making pretty good solid progress um and we we're going to need young talented people to be coming in and adding their ideas to to the, to the to the table and to actually be players on the arena you know who are actually trying to solve the problem whether it's through an adaptive management approach or through a scientific breakthrough or through just incremental disciplined improving our understanding of the system and understanding how animals transition from captivity into the wild and i think those are all very realistic goals um and it's hard work uh, doing a release trial getting getting the animals sufficient numbers of animals to be doing the monitoring and going out there and 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 following them and tracking them and understanding them and dealing with situations where, oh, our frogs just disappeared and we didn't see them again, you know, figuring it out and, 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 and making progress is, is the only way that we will be able to solve this problem in the future. And people are doing it. And I, I, I am very, very inspired by many of my colleagues who are very dedicated to this cause and coming up with new discoveries every day and you know it's i think it's a very exciting time to be an amphibian conservation because the stakes are high and we are a small community there's not a million people working on it but um i think i think our our challenge is very clearly drawn out in front of us and our understanding of the system is just improving every day it is encouraging though and i i feel like i can hear probably hear my frogs calling in the background <laughs> even, though, <laughs> even though it's dark some of my dark frogs they, they call in the dark but um yeah because the lights have gone out here not that anyone cares but um years ago i mean I'm, I'm 43 i remember in the late 80s and the early 90s when this all kind of became on the radar people became aware of, of massive amphibian die-offs and for the longest time, it seemed like such a losing battle. And I, I guess the longer you're, the longer you can study something, the more time you have to observe it and monitor it, the more you can learn how to fight it. And it, it is, it's encouraging to know that there is progress and there will continue to be progress and that we've lost many different species over the past few decades for a number of reasons, even, even besides disease. But I, the fact that we are gaining ground is something that 
makes me feel good because it's not like they're here today and gone tomorrow, which, which obviously can happen. But, um, I mean, if you, if you had asked me maybe 15 years ago, will any of these species still be around in 2022? I would have said probably not. And I'm sure many other scientists would have said that too, but yeah, it is, it is kind of, uh, I, I, I like to end on a good note and it is, it is a good note that there are many people out there, such as yourself and many other researchers and people involved with conservation and even in private enterprise, who were able to really pull this off because it's it's no it's it's no easy feat, as I'm sure you know way better than I do. It is it is it is it is a challenge of our times, and I think that if we can figure out how to solve. Uh, pandemic and amphibians we might be better positioned to solve human pandemics and isn't that the sign of our times i think that it's made the topic more relatable to people i think that i mean i i don't know i don't know how how well versed the average person is in infectious disease i mean when, i mean if you take the, the the tragic element out of it Infectious disease is really fascinating in, in, in humans and in animals. It's just, it's, it's, it's incredible. It, it only exists because we're exposed to each other or something else. It's not like, um, like cancer or things like that. But I wonder if this has given people a great, a better perspective in terms of how infectious disease can affect other organisms. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's a positive thing. I don't, I don't know. Well, I, I hope that that our our current pandemic has has at least helped people understand some of the gravity of the situation when we start talking about these situations for other species. Agreed. Well, Brian, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us about this. This is I, I I'm always interested in this because it's just. One of those things that always kind of fascinated me is growing up and even up until now. For the listeners or anybody else who wants to find out more information, is there a website that they can go to or any kind of resource that you'd recommend that they check out or if they wanted to find out more about yeah. you and your research? Our project is amphibianrescue.org. And those are also our social media handles. And Amphibian what, Rescue. And you're on uh, Facebook or Instagram or yeah. Twitter? Okay, got it. All right. Any any upcoming research you want to maybe tease us about? Anything coming up that we should be on the lookout for in the next couple of years? Uh, you'll you'll see when it gets out. <laughs> Publication is a is a very <laughs> I know I know a very, a very drawn out process. I know. Ho- I know. Hopefully, our reintroduction trials will be published soon. So, well, that's good. good. That's good. I'm glad to hear. Yeah, I, I know. I never. You're never going to know unless you ask. <laughs> but I know how that goes. All right, everyone. Again, I want to thank Brian for taking the time to talk to us about this subject. I know conservation is one of those things where it can be, um, you know, it can be a difficult topic to talk about because, um, you know, it's it's obviously still an uphill battle. But um, I think we're all grateful for people like Brian and other researchers and scientists who are putting in the good fight. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, you know, again, I, I love doing these these types of discussions with uh, with scientists and researchers about conservation. And I know you guys, too. I know you guys do too. And again, I want to thank everybody again, just for all the support that we've gotten over the past couple of years for the podcast. I know I mentioned earlier in the intro about Spotify and uh, it means a lot. So everyone out there who's listening and enjoying the show, thanks for your support. Please continue to do so. And I will catch up with you guys again soon.